0: Hi again,
1: everybody. I'm Dan Horde, and this is the Bengals Booth Podcast. The waiting on the world to change edition as the Bengals try to get over the hump after another nail-biting loss and pick up their first win of the season on Monday night in Pittsburgh. Coming up, I'll spend about 20 minutes with my broadcast partner Dave Lapham as we discuss the emergence of Auden Tate at wide receiver, how Billy Price did in his first start at left guard, why the Steelers are off to an 0-3 start, and since we're heading to Pittsburgh, we'll find out what Lap thinks of the Steel City's legendary Pramante Brothers sandwich. We'll also hear from Sports Illustrated's Andy Benoit on this episode of the pod. Of the many things written about Zach Taylor after the Bengals hired him, I thought Andy wrote the best story. He spent time at Zach's house office and in the meeting rooms at Paul Brown Stadium, and you'll hear what Andy thinks of Zach Taylor and his chances of being a successful NFL head coach. And in this week's Know the Foe segment, we'll get the lowdown on the Steelers from pregame radio host and local columnist Tim Benz. All of that is straight ahead, but first, here's a quick reminder that you can have the latest edition of this podcast delivered right to your phone, tablet, or computer by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean. It's the greatest thing since... Marty Brenneman. What do you consider to be the greatest streak in baseball history? Joe DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak? Cal Ripken's streak of playing in 2,632 consecutive games? Or maybe it's Derek Jeter's streak of dating nothing but perfect 10s in his 20 seasons as shortstop for the New York Yankees. All impressive streaks especially Jeter's, but none of them is the correct answer. The greatest streak in baseball history is 46 years and approximately 7,000 games old. It is Marty Brenneman's streak of never blowing a big call as the voice of the Reds. Take it from somebody who got completely fooled by Andy Dalton's zone read fake to Joe Mixon last Sunday. That streak is nothing short of miraculous. As a play-by-play announcer of live sporting events, you work without an eraser or a backspace key. You get one chance to get the moment right. For Marty Brenneman, whether it was the final out-of-the-world series, a perfect game by Tom Browning, or the Jay Bruce walk-off homer that clinched a division title back in 2010, there was never a stumble, never an incorrect name, never a botched detail. The words and the tone have always been perfect. Marty Brenneman is one of the most important people in Reds history as he has provided the soundtrack to summer throughout the Tri-State for more than four decades. He was the voice of the Big Red Machine and the wire-to-wire World Series champs and has helped entertain us through the inevitable lousy seasons as well. Perhaps the biggest thing that makes Marty unique is that he is the most candid home team announcer in the history of broadcasting. If the Reds are screwing up, Marty isn't afraid to say so, but that's not the only thing that makes him an all-time great. He is effortlessly entertaining, funny, opinionated, quick-to-poke fun at himself, and an absolute master at making his broadcasting partners sound good. And I speak from experience, having had the privilege of calling games with both Marty and the late Joe Knox Hall. This podcast is being posted on the same day that Marty concludes his Hall of Fame broadcasting career, so... Here's to a friend, mentor, and broadcasting hero, the truly one-of-a-kind Marty Brenneman. Now let's get to football as I bring in my broadcast partner Dave Lapham to look back at last week's four-point loss to Buffalo And look ahead to Monday night football between two teams still looking for their first win. The 0-3 start is obviously disappointing, but there are some guys that have been playing well. Give me a guy on each side of the ball that stands out to you. I think uh, for the exact
2: same reasons um, in terms of no matter the situation, uh, haven't had many leads, but when they're in the lead, they play hard. And when they're trailing by, you know, 20 24, 31 points, they're still playing hard. Tyler Boyd uh, for the offense, uh, Andy Dalton can count on him. The guy competes um, no matter what the situation, he's he's gonna work hard to get open. He's tough as there is, tough as nails, catches everything. Andy Dalton knows that Tyler Boyd's gonna give him every ounce of effort. And on the defensive side of it, Sam Hubbard the same way. You know, when you watch Sam Hubbard play, can't tell if the team's ahead or behind playing with his hair on fire, running every play down. His pursuit angles are really good, and his effort to get there are unbelievably good. It leads the team in sacks, uh, disruptive player. And I think every single game after the, after the football game, even though all three of them have been defeats, two of them pretty close defeats, they can look in the mirror and say, yep, gave everything I had, emptied the tank, couldn't have done uh, more physically out there, just didn't work out
1: for us. At halftime of last week's game in Buffalo, I think both of us were thinking the same thing, along with probably every Bengals fan watching. Yikes, this team's not very good. But they managed to turn around in the second half and at least come away with something positive from that game.
2: I don't don't think I've seen in quite a while, particularly in the Bengals organization, there have probably been cases of it around the National Football League, but, but a team that was so subpar in the first half, I mean, couldn't get out of their own way. Uh, didn't generate a first down until less than two minutes to go in the first half 0 for 5 on third down <laughs> Andy Dalton's first completion at the end of the play was a fumble I mean that's the exercise in futility if you'd ever seen or heard of one and and to regroup a little bit like they did at halftime and realize that you know <laughs> we're our biggest problem Buffalo's defense is good and they are, they're very good I mean they're they're well put together and the players understand every nuance of it and they understand how to take things away from the opposition offense. You know they're right in line mentally uh, with with what the coaches are trying to ask them to do. So that's a good defensive unit. But when they came out and um, in the second half and and put three straight scores on the board, uh, three straight possessions and run seventeen point total up there and take a lead, it was it was not stunning, but it was surprising. You know that what where were these guys to go from to go from the uh, outhouse not to the penthouse but closer to the penthouse than you were I mean you were definitely in the outhouse there's no question about that for them to you know pull themselves up individually and collectively by the bootstraps like they did I thought I thought was pretty impressive you know unfortunately the defense I I I honestly think that the number of snaps they took in the first half had a cumulative effect on them they took 46 snaps in the first half in the fourth quarter you know that's that's when you're tired you're not only physically tired your mind is a little bit tired and you know they made a made a big assignment error on a 49-yard completion to the tight end Knox that killed them
1: lap let's talk about wide receiver Auden Tate who had the best game of his young career last week six catches for 88 yards against the Bills in the first two games Damian Willis was getting those snaps last week they went to Auden Tate why i think he got healthy you know Auden Tate uh, had been fighting that uh,
2: foot ankle injury that that he sustained, um, or I guess so it was a knee injury that he sustained during training camp, and uh, you know he was rehabbing, you know, real aggressively, but he just wasn't able to make the dance, you know, in the first uh, first couple of weeks. So I think that you know he just keeps working hard. I mean, I, I like everything about his work ethic, and um, he's got he brings a t- lot to the table. I mean, six five between two twenty five and two hundred thirty pounds. Long arms, big, huge catching radius, broad shoulders, huge frame, easy target to see in the middle of the field. I mean, he looks like a tight end to a quarterback when he's running routes in the middle of the football field. Um, and he's not, he's not going to run by you necessarily, you know, straight line speed, but he has way above average short space quickness for a guy his size. So he gets in and out of cuts well. He can make people miss, you know, initially when they're trying to contact him after the catch. And because of his, his length and his size – He's a contested catch, you know maniac. I mean, it's not a 50-50 ball in his mind. It's a 1000 ball in his mind. Every time it's up for grabs, he's going to get the thing. Big vice grip hands, um, you know he, two things you want in a receiver we've talked about a lot, Dan, Tyler Boyd gives it and this kid does too, is toughness and um, you know good hands. The thing that impressed me most is he got screwed. No other way to put it. He got shafted on a holding call that nullified a 92yard touchdown return on a, on a kickoff he could have gone in the tank a lot of guys would you know oh man let that linger you know because of that play you know the next half dozen times you're targeted it doesn't work out because your mind's messed up he didn't do any of that that impressed me as a young player put it aside you know I know I didn't do what he said I did I'm going to put it aside and see if I can make plays other ways to help the team win the football game because that play would have been a huge spark and it could taken away unnecessarily, and he was the guy that was, you know, pointed the finger at, and so doing it, he didn't do anything wrong, really. So sometimes that's life
1: in the NFL with the Zebras. After three weeks, John Ross is third in the NFL in receiving yards, but number one in drops, according to Pro Football Focus, five of them so far. He had a fumble last week against Buffalo. Is this just the John Ross experience, as we have kind of jokingly referred to it? you got to live with a few drops in order to get the big plays? I mean his
2: good has been exceptionally good and his bad has been frustratingly bad as it always is you know I mean it's like easy throws boom right there in the hands and you know not drop them and uh yeah I I was on the, on the overthrow from Andy Dalton to John Ross my first reaction was why don't you dive you know full extension go for the football then I watched the trajectory of the throw from Andy and that it's you can't dive you got to put some air under it and let him run underneath it and you know if he if he did dive he wouldn't have been able to get his hands up high enough to catch it anyway because it was more of a direct line shot i mean Andy was trying to just put it on him from that distance and the margin for error is minimal at that point and he overthrew him by a yard if he just puts a little air under it because you can't overthrow john ross it's like how do you overthrow john ross put a little more air under and i think he would have been able to run underneath that thing and that that's a uh, you know that's a touchdown right there that uh, that the Bengals didn't take full advantage of. So, um, you know it, th- those kind of things can can be frustrating. And you know five five drops, a drop at least one drop every game. So it's not you know something that is is coming and going. I mean it's it's there and you know. I know the fans are crossing their fingers, hoping every time he, it's thrown to him he's going to make a play. If his quarterback starts thinking that and the coaches start thinking that, you know, pretty soon it's like, man, do I throw it to him or not? You can't have those kind of thoughts. You just have to gun it and cut it loose. He just needs to uh, – and I, I thought the the uh, in opposite of Auden Tate, when Auden Tate faced the adversity of the holding call, he never wavered. I thought John Ross kind of checked out for a little while. I mean, he just wasn't – you know, he he let it bother him for too long a period of time. You just have to have you know selective amnesia, put it aside, move on. You can't let one mistake turn into not even uh, being available for a period of time. You got to get yourself right back into the game. You can't mentally say, "Oh man, I can't believe I did that," and you know pout and whine about it. You know internally, you just can't do it. You you just have to be you know, the mental toughness that you know that Zach's talking about. You got to come right back. You know, like he did. uh uh, when, he, when he dropped the ball and then has a 50-yard touchdown pass the very next play and, and makes a big play to make up for the drop. I mean, that's what you have to do. And in this case, I thought he'd let it linger too long.
1: I'm going to save this recording the next time I play golf because nobody goes into the tank after a double bogey like Dan (laughs) Hort. I'm telling you, my recovery skills are not great on the course. Let's talk about the offensive line. How did they do as a whole, and how did Billy Price do in particular getting his first start at left guard?
2: Yeah, I I respect the job that Billy Price did. I'll I'll start with that one. Um, You know, the the thing when something happens to a a highly decorated player coming out of college, you know, everybody's All-American and first-round pick. To play center for the Bengals, and and you lose that job, uh, and then you know instead of moaning and pouting and grousing about it and putting your chin on your chest, he he basically handled it pretty darn well. You know he said all the right things. That's one thing. But then do all the right things. Make sure you're working hard. Make sure you're um, trying to overcome the deficiencies that cost you you know that starting position. Um, and I do think that he's still not 100% right physically i still think he's got a little bit of a foot problem i truly believe that um and you know it's it's not the liz frank it's the plantar fasciitis stuff liz frank was last year plantar fasciitis this year and 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 those things can hang on i mean i've had it you know not because of distance running i know you've had it from distance (laughs) running not me but i've (laughs) had but i've had plantar fasciitis and man it's nasty depending on the severity of it it can be very nasty so um you know the, the the fact that Billy worked hard physically and mentally even more so to be ready for an opportunity because at some t- at some point you know it's going to come somebody's going to get nicked up in the interior of the offensive line and he's going to have to step in and, and then not miss a beat and uh, unfortunately it was Michael Jordan that went down with the knee injury not severe you know I think he'll be able to play this week but Billy went in there and acquitted himself well I thought he did thought he played played a solid football game and I think up and down the line of scrimmage. I thought they all did, you know. There was one false start. Andre had a false start. So in two loud, boisterous stadiums, toughest, you know, amongst the toughest in the NFL, their silent snap count uh, system that they installed was impeccable, you know. And, and, and the communication, uh, again, Trey Hopkins communicating calls really well. Uh, they picked up things from Andy Dalton they needed to pick up. So I, I thought the, the operation was, you know, Pretty, pretty darn efficient, and I, I didn't think that that the offensive line was the big reason that they weren't in sync, you know, I thought it was other reasons that they, they weren't in sync, and, and I thought the offensive line pretty much for the entire game played at the same level of consistency, and that's, that's what you want, like we're talking with John Ross, you know, man, to be you know, impeccable one snap and putrid another. You you just can't have that rise and fall. Your graph can't be North Pole, South Pole. You know, it's got to be a steady. The coaches have to know what they can expect every single snap from you as a
1: football player. Speaking of Trey Hopkins, he remains the highest graded player on the team. According to Pro Football Focus, he's no longer number one among centers, but he is still number four, which is obviously very good. On defense, their highest graded player after three weeks is Andrew Billings number eleven among interior defensive linemen? It's telling they don't have anybody in the top ten after three weeks. But he had a good game against Buffalo: five tackles, including two for losses.
2: He did. I thought that he his his penetration uh, was, you know, was consistent. You know, I thought he was winning at a very high level. There's no question about it. Um, in I think the big thing is now he's healthy. When he had that knee injury such a big body you know and and he's not a real tall guy so he's got he's got a lot of weight packed on a you know know, not a real long frame and when you have a knee injury in that regard i thought it really hurt his lateral movement you know i thought he i thought he could still go ahead and penetrate you know straight ahead and penetrate kind of thing but then to stop and redirect that's where he was having difficulty now he's got all that back where he can penetrate he can move laterally he's staying on his feet better um, you know, I, th- I think that now they're starting to see the Andrew Billions that, you know, when they drafted him in the fourth round, they said, well, you know, we had him, he's great at as a first-round talent, you know, coming out of Baylor. He was a co-defensive player of the year in the Big 12. I mean, this guy was a player, and I think now they're starting to see, you know, that type of player.
1: You often talk about how the offensive line, you want the sum to be, you know, greater than the individual parts how about the secondary? Because I look at those guys individually and I'm thinking, alright, he's a decent player, he's a good player, he was a high draft pick, et cetera. But that group as a whole has not played well, at least to my eyes, in the first three games.
2: Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's been up to up to standard that they the expectations they have of themselves or their coaches have of them or defensive coordinator Lou Rumo has of them. Um, I think that one of the bigger areas is inconsistent tackling. You know, I mean, the when the edge when the edge is being captured, like it's being captured, a lot of times the run support, the run force is supposed to be coming from that cornerback spot, and uh, and it's not it's not being you know it's being fulfilled from an assignment responsibility. So, and and when um I know in the first in the first two games I think it was. 11 and 8 tackles missed, 19 tackles missed. 8 in the opener, 11 in the second game or something like that. I know I know against San Francisco there were 11 tackles missed. Seattle it wasn't that bad, but there were 11 tackles missed against uh, against the San Francisco 49ers and a, a lot of them were on that in that level, you know. So I think um, yeah, it's in in a perfect world, you have to have the two components. You have to have the pressure and and in coverage, if you have both, you know you're in great shape, and, and good pressure will, you know, lessen the burden on the back end. Great coverage can sometimes create sacks that you normally wouldn't expect to be there. If a quarterback has to pull it down and start running around, unless you're Josh Allen, who fakes everybody out and throws the thing a mile down the field, but um, yeah, I, I think I think there's room, there's room for growth for sure. There's room for improvement on the back end. I think they can tighten things up
1: big time. The Bengals head to Pittsburgh on Monday night and lapped somebody, sprayed a big old can of Raid on the killer bees. Bell is gone. Brown is gone. Big Ben is injured. How good is the Steelers' offense without those guys? Time for the Bengals' defense to sting the Steelers' offense, man. <laughs> uh,
2: their, their numbers aren't very good. You know, Who would have thought that they'd be 30th in the NFL in yards per game, 26th in yards per pass, 29th in rushing yards per game, 24th in rushing average, 25th in passing yards, 27th in passing average. That is unSteeler-like. Tied for 27th in points scored. That's a different uh, a different football team. the The thing is, though, Dan, um, as we know, you're as good as your guys up front in a lot of instances. And the guys up front are still pretty good. For the Pittsburgh Steelers, they have three pro bowlers. Pouncy has been a pro bowler, DeCastro, and Villanueva. 60% of their offensive line has been pro bowl participants. So, you know, that's something to work with. Um, they're all back. They signed Ramon Foster. Even though he's advanced in years, they didn't want to break up the break up the band as such. And, and they're still operating, you know, uh, I think pretty effectively. They've only allowed four quarterback sacks, which is amongst the fewest in the National Football League, but their offensive line coach is in Denver, and Mike Munchak is as good as there is in the National Football League, and in my mind, that's that's a big difference. But when, when those killer bees all lost their stingers or flew away, there's a ripple effects. the defense isn't playing as well either. You know, the offense isn't holding up their under the bargain, so the defense has more pressure on them. They're more snaps out in the field, more exposure. So when the killer bees
1: either died or flew away, <laughs> really, really hurt the football team in a lot of ways. Lap, in their last 20 games against Pittsburgh, the Bengals have not scored more than 21 points one time. They've only won four out of those 20 games. Why does the Steelers' defense always give Cincinnati so much trouble? I think that as an organization they have a belief in the defensive uh,
2: schematic that they're running and they run it very well and they draft to fit that defensive scheme. You know, they don't they don't say, "Oh, this is a great player and we might be able to transition him into what we do." It's like, "This guy is a solid player and does exactly what we need at this position or that position. Let's draft him and develop him." Man, they they very rarely miss on you know somebody that that they've targeted to to fill a, a very very necessary role in that defensive uh, structure, and you know it started with Dick LeBeau. You know the great Dick LeBeau put together a package uh, that was amazing and and uh, highlighted and accentuated the, the the talents of his great defensive players, particularly the linebackers. I mean Pittsburgh's had unbelievable linebackers for so long, amazing linebackers and. You know, Bush is the latest one they drafted. Uh, he's not, quoting in the starting lineup, but he's in there in a lot of packages. And, uh, you know, they've also had safeties like Tro- Troy Polamalu that was such unbelievable playmakers, and they just traded for one, Mika Fitzpatrick, who can fit that bill. So they've always been good. They, they have a defensive line in the middle. They have a linebacker, and they have a safety. We talk about in baseball, you want to be strong, catch your shortstop, center field defensively, and they're strong up the middle defensively normally with what they've done, um, and, and that's where the, it starts. They take, take the middle of the field away from you and make you go to the outside in the running game and throwing the football, and, and that, that's, that's been their, their formula for success for a bunch
1: of years. Let's talk about the Bengals-Steelers rivalry. It has been spirited in a bad way in recent years. We've seen a lot of cheap shots. We've seen guys you know, taken off the field unconscious, et cetera. Vontez Perfect isn't around anymore. Joey Porter isn't around anymore. Do you think there is a reasonable chance that these two teams will will get after it without it uh, g- crossing a line?
2: Yeah, when you think about um, that uh, that game in the playoffs, um, Vontez Perfect, Adam Jones, Joey Porter, the three prime figures in that in that drama are no longer with their respective football teams. So maybe with that turnover, um, you know, the, it, it, maybe. But there's a lot of guys still on both teams that were part of that of that uh, fracas and, and the <laughs> the ending of the fracas and everything that goes along with it. My my thing, one of my big keys this week, is razor sharp mental focus and no no uh, hidden agendas, no personal vendettas. Doesn't do you any good. It's past history. You got to go win. This football game on a snap by snap basis. Period. You know, don't don't be like, eh, yeah, this is for so and so that you knocked out. Ah, this is for so and so who you knee you wrecked. Or, you know that that kind of stuff never ends up working out well for you. You know, playing football. Now, now it can be part of your your overall. You know, getting yourself adrenaline pumping and getting ready for a game. You know, all the pre pre. But once the game starts, man, you still have you have to be you know, I call it the controlled rage, which is a delicate balance. You want to be able to pick the stadium up, but you want to be able to fulfill your assignments, and not be out of your mind because you know, you're, you know, the adrenaline's pump is so coursing through your veins and you're, you're a wild man. That does not do anybody any good. You know, you're going to have uh, unnecessary penalties, uh, be it pre-snap penalties, because you're out of your mind and you're not focused or, um, you know, after the play, late hit, whatever the case may be. Th- those are the kind of things you you don't want to have. and in my mind Dan the two things uh, that have cost this football team dearly offensively staying on schedule it's been penalties self-destruction penalties defensively misdirection those are the, if, if I had to pick one thing for each side of the football that's what I would pick and both of them require immense focus to rectify you know just you know you're going you're going to be in a loud place again you've handled the, the noise and everything it hasn't been false starts and those kind of things but holding penalties you know sloppy hands at very inopportune times you know you have to be real focused on that stuff and defensively and you, you Pittsburgh's going to run misdirection everybody's going to run misdirection you're going to see it once once the 49ers had the success they had in week 2 the other 13 uh, 14 weeks remaining from there everybody's going to do some of it maybe not as much but you're going to see it until you stop it, you're going to see it. So you better start uh, sharpening your focus and getting your eyes right because everybody thinks that it, the Bengals' defense, man, all you have to do is get them running one way, their eyes are fooled and misdirection the other
1: way, and they can't get back to where they need to be. Final thing as we make our annual trip to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Where do you stand on the Primanti Brothers sandwich, where basically they stick everything in between two pieces of Italian bread? The burger, the fries, the coleslaw, the whole bit stuffed inside those two pieces of bread. When it's freshly made and warm, I'm okay with it. But a
2: cold, greasy, man, I I feel like I'm eating Crisco between...
1: They usually (laughs) give it to us on the flight home, which is a lovely gesture. They try to to tie the post-game flight home meal to whatever city you're in, which is a really cool concept, but it does tend to be a little chilly by then. Yeah, and, and at that point, I mean, forget the fries.
2: I mean, there's nothing worse than like cold fries. Well. No, cold fries that look like they have lard on them. You know, it's like yeah, what the. I, I'm I'm going eh on that, but uh, it is a nice gesture though. And I mean, that is that is like you know the Montgomery and the Graders, the skyline of of Cincinnati. That that sandwich is that's Pittsburgh now. That's a, that's a slice of Pittsburgh. But when there's cold
1: fries, they can keep the slice. <laughs> One of our favorite guests on Bengals radio shows is Andy Benoit from Sports Illustrated and the MMQB. He's one of the best in the business at breaking down the tape and sharing what he sees in an entertaining and informative way. Andy has written a couple of great stories about Zach Taylor. Last December, he wrote about Zach and his brother, Press, who is an assistant coach with the Eagles, and the title of that story was, The Brothers Taylor Are Coaching's Next Big Thing. Then this year, during OTAs in June, Andy spent 24 hours behind the scenes with Zach and provided a very illuminating look at the Bengals' new head coach. Recently, Andy Benoit joined Dave Lapham and me to discuss Zach and his coaching staff.
3: Well, I think very highly of him on a personal level, him and his, his brother. Are, I'm, I'm big fans of both guys as people and as coaches. And one thing that really impresses me about Zach is, and Sean McVay was the first that emphasized this to me. First, I mean, you notice it, anyone notices it when you talk to him, but to hear McVay elocuted, he has great emotional intelligence. And McVeigh talked about how good he was in meetings. There's a natural openness to the way everyone can communicate around him. There's no pretense at all with either of the Taylor brothers. And you feel like you can be vulnerable to make mistakes, which is, in my opinion, that's a big deal when you're trying to get creative minds in the room and thinking about what's best to do for a football team. And that stood out when I spent time with him, too. It's It's a group effort on that coaching staff. And Zach Taylor will never pretend that he knows something that he doesn't know. He wants to learn in the moment, and he doesn't care whose idea it is. He wants the best idea.
2: Yeah, I mean, that, that's one thing, Andy, that he mentioned uh, to me early on. I said, you know, you obviously have not hired a bunch of yes men. You, you have hired guys that have opinions. You want that. I mean, are you, are you basically searching for that? He goes, absolutely. I don't want guys to look at me and nod in agreement with everything that I'm talking about. I remember here in Cincinnati, one of the best offenses ever put together, Sam Weich and Bruce Coslett. Battles, fights, I mean arguments over what to put in the game plan. They had different maybe ideas. And out of, those, out of those meetings came an unbelievable game plan. And I think you do have to have differing opinions. There's no question about it, right?
3: Absolutely. And one of the really cool things that I saw when I was, uh, when I was with them, uh, those well, people don't realize offensive staffs in the NFL spend a lot of time trying to figure out ways to beat their defensive staff. These guys face each other all off season. That's, uh, these are some of the most competitive men on the face of the planet. And as, as Bill Callahan once said to me, we want to beat the crap out of our own defensive coaches. Now you want those guys to succeed, but it's, it's competitive. So Lou Anarumo and Jack Taylor got in a conversation when I was there. Taylor spent all day trying to figure, okay, here's what Lou's going to do. We think he's going to play this route this way. They get into the practice. And, and Anna Rumo's defense destroys the route and, and the plays a sack or whatever it was. And Taylor goes to Lou Anna Rumo afterwards and just says, Hey, what, how did you know it was coming? Tell us because we need to know that. And to watch Anna Rumo break it down and the aha look on Taylor's face and the back and forth that those two guys had, it, it's one of the really fun things about football because when you're learning that way, you're not just learning answers for the question you're addressing at that moment. You're learning how to think together and think of other answers for questions that you don't even know exist yet.
1: We are talking to Andy Benoit from Sports Illustrated and the MMQB. He is a great Twitter follow at Andy underscore Benoit, B-E-N-O-I-T. Once again this year, Andy, the big question mark for the Bengals revolves around the offensive line. How much can a Sean McVay-like offense, it might be a little bit different, but certainly that's a big part of it, how much can that type of offense help the offensive line?
3: Well, it's, that's a little bit of a chicken or an egg question because when you have that offense, it's an outside zone running scheme first and foremost. So it's just Think elephants on parade, all these big men moving in unison off the snap. And in order to play that way, you have to have a certain threshold of athleticism up front. You don't need world beaters, but you, you need you need guys who are a plus athletes, that are nimble, that get off the ball. And if you don't have that, you're going to struggle. And if you're going to struggle in your outside zone running game, then your play action game, and therefore your passing game will struggle as well. And that's my big concern for Cincinnati. I, I, they have a good offensive line coach in Jim Turner. The system is a smart, sound system. And it's still the NFL and you have to have a third level of talent up front. And I don't know if they have that talent now. They've had a lot of injuries so far, but
1: you know we'll find out. Through three games, one offensive lineman gets extremely high grades from the website Pro Football Focus as Trey Hopkins is ranked fourth among centers. John Miller is tied for 20th among guards who have been in there for at least 50% of their team's snaps. Now time for this week's Know the Foe segment. When the Bengals head to Pittsburgh on Monday night, it'll be the first time in 15 years and 10 months that they will face the Steelers without Ben Roethlisberger at quarterback. Over the first 15 years of his career, Big Ben missed 25 starts, but none of them were against Cincinnati. He always played against the Bengals, and he almost always won, going 25-7 and against Cincinnati, including a pair of playoff wins. Instead of having Big Ben back there, it'll be second-year pro Mason Rudolph at quarterback, and there's an interesting storyline there. Last year, in the third round of the draft, Seattle had the 76th pick, the Bengals had the 77th, followed by Kansas City and then Pittsburgh. The Steelers made a trade, moving up three spots in order to take Rudolph, supposedly because they thought the Bengals were going to take the Oklahoma State quarterback. I don't know if they're right, but I do know the Bengals are perfectly happy to get Sam Hubbard at number 77. For a closer look at the Steelers, Tim Benz joined us on the Bengals game plan show this week. He hosts the Steelers pregame show, and I started our conversation by asking him to describe the mood in Pittsburgh these days with the killer bees gone and the team off to an 0-3 start.
0: I think the fan base tried really, really hard to talk itself into everything would be fine with Le'Veon Bell officially gone and Antonio Brown leaving. There was so much anger at those two guys as to how they treated the organization and Roethlisberger and the coach and the players on the way out the door that it galvanized the fan base to the point that maybe we kidded ourselves to believe that they could be okay with their absence. Uh, unfortunately, the negatives have manifested there. It's just been exacerbated by Big Ben's injury for sure.
2: Let me ask a two-part question. You, you, you referenced negatives, you know, that you ended up kind of fooling yourselves a little bit with the effect that the killer B's going out the door by injury and other reasons. But the what about the killer M, Mike Munchak, the offensive line coach? In his absence, is the offensive line playing as well?
0: No, it isn't. I think that's a factor. Maybe not limited to the fact that Munchak was a master technician and seemed to have a magic touch, even with the ability to continue to teach veterans when their techniques slip. Beyond that, I think he was a vocal component of how the run game should operate, and that is what patterned at best here in Pittsburgh. Uh, just simple nuanced things like, Do you really want a perceived power back like James Conner taking handoffs in the shotgun, starting flat-footed instead of running into the handoff and taking it from a quarterback that's under center? Do you you constantly want uh, a run game that's kind of built for Le'Veon Bell or a guy like James Conner? If James Conner isn't getting it done, could Mike Munchak make suggestions to better utilize Jalen Samuels or Benny Snell? I think Munchak's uh, absence, has really been felt so far for those reasons. Daryl Drake, who was a wide receivers coach for the team that was beloved by his players, died during training camp and was replaced by Ray Sherman. And I think a lot of the things that have been said about how much he helped teach the young wide receivers, uh, those intangibles have become tangibly obvious because they haven't taken a step without Antonio Brown, so I think that hurts. Uh, There's a lot wrong here, no doubt.
1: Steelers pregame host uh, Tim Benz is our guest, so no Bell, no Brown, no Ben. That helps explain some of the problems on offense. Why has the defense been so lousy? They've given up 400-plus in every game this season. Yeah, they
0: did not take the strides that they thought they would in the middle third of the defense with better coverage from the safeties and linebackers. I think that's one major glaring problem. Terrell Edmonds hasn't started to show that year-two leap that Troy Polamalu did when they were both kind of playing the same position. Uh, Now, that's Troy being Troy, but they had high hopes for Edmonds, too. Maybe not to that degree, but better than what he's been. Also, I think the linebackers, Devin Bush and Mark Barron, haven't solved that big problem from last year. Vince Williams, who's a run-stuffer, has been hurt. Neither Bell nor Barron are great at getting off blocks or supporting the run. And they haven't been uh, as adept in coverage as the team at Hope when they acquired him via free agency in the draft.
1: The Steelers have not fired a head coach since 1968. How safe is Mike Tomlin?
0: Well, that's a, that's a great way to frame it because you know what the Elsa has done since 1967 is trade a first round draft choice, and they did that, right? <laughs> so. You know, I'm wondering if it's starting to change their thinking on some things, and I'm wondering if the coach is still in the hot seat, and that's why he endorsed the trade for Mika Fitzpatrick to give up a first-rounder. I think there is a built-in excuse with Roethlisberger uh, being absent. I think that the Roonies hate the idea of firing a coach. Um, I think they like Mike Tomlin a lot, and I think unless it really goes bad and we're talking like, and 13, bad losing the Bengals twice, losing the Jets, the Dolphins, something like that, and uh, the concerns about timing as a coach without Roethlisberger manifest before our eyes. I think he'll be back.
2: Yeah, I mean, he's never had a losing season as a head coach. I think it would be tough to can him, you know, uh, based on. But you know, Pittsburgh's expectations are high. They're seven and two at one point last year, wasn't it? And didn't make the seven playoffs. Two one, yeah, yeah, seven, two, and one. So talking about Minka Fitzpatrick, first-round pick for him. But, you know, you want the Troy Polamalo-type, you know, playmaker on the back end. His first start against San Francisco, he has an interception on deflection, and uh, and he also – or he has an interception, and he, and he also forces a fumble. So the last time that happened in the same game was 2016. Uh, William Gay did it against the Colts. So in his first game, he's involved with two turnovers. Is that what they expect out of Minka Fitzpatrick? And is the fan base content with giving up that first-round pick for Minka Fitzpatrick? Uh,
0: It's a tremendous question, and it's a tremendous debate. And the direct answer to the question about Fitzpatrick is, yes, that's what they're anticipating and hoping for. He attacked the line of scrimmage with blitzes a lot more than what was anticipated last week. And that was a scheme-specific thing he told us to try to disrupt the Niners' run game, which is what happened at first. They adjusted, and then the Niners started to run better. But they do like him a lot, and they do think he can provide that. Um, I thought it was a crystallization of the entire debate. I love the player. If the Steelers had a chance to take Fitzpatrick in the first round last year, I wish they could have done it. I'm glad he's here. I don't, however, like the notion of giving up a first-round pick to get him if this is, in fact, the first year the Steelers draft in the top 10 uh, or right. the top 11 when they got Roethlisberger since 2006 because – If you're drafting that high, as good as he is as a free safety, if you're drafting that high, give me Roethlisberger's successor as a quarterback. Give me the next great pass rusher, uh, you know, because Bud Dupree is going to leave it right outside linebacker. Get his replacement. Get a replacement for Joe Hayden at corner. Get me a more impactful position if your team is drafting
2: that high. Bengals were interested in Devin Bush potentially in the draft this year. They took Jonah Williams. Unfortunately, he's – Hurt, he's got a labrum uh, surgery done on a labrum tear. Devin Bush, 29 tackles, leads all rookies, sixth in the National Football League. He's recovered three fumbles in three games, number one in the National Football League. Are they happy with Bush? I noticed they don't list him as, quote, a starter, but he's playing a hell of a lot of snaps. Are they happy with him, or has he got a lot of room to grow? Well, they should be listing him as
0: a starter now, unless they're assuming that they're going into the time to begin, because um, Vince Williams is hurt. So maybe it's just because they're not ruling out Williams that they don't list him that way. Uh, He's been getting plenty of snaps, especially with Williams' actions for the last, uh, for the most part, two games, really. The way he's been playing, a lot of those tackles are not, um, to draw an analogy to last year's star inside rookie linebacker, Darius Leonard. They're not Darius Leonard tackles. The ball has fortunately bounced his way by virtue of good plays by other guys to get those fourth fumbles. Some of those tackles are downfield. He's having trouble getting off blocks. He hasn't looked quite as adept in coverage as they have hoped. Um, you know, they didn't trust him initially to be the communicator with the green dot, which forced them to put it on an outside linebacker, T.J. Watt, which is the first time I've seen that happen in my years covering the team going back to 2001. So, uh, And he's little, guys. I mean, he's, he's, He was listed small, but he looks smaller than that. And uh, he has had some trouble getting away from linemen that have gotten out to the second level on him.
2: Yeah, he's not, when you look at him, I mean, he looks the, the height of a safety. I mean, he, he, he's not, what is he, about 5'10"?
0: Yeah, 5'10". I think they list him a little bit, like 5'10 and a half. Um, if you look at the, the height comparisons between, like, him and Shazier and James Ferrier, they aren't all that different. But right. I can tell you just being around him in the locker room, like, Ferrier and Shazier were bigger guys. And right. it doesn't feel like an inch and a half or two inches should make that much difference. But it sure does look
1: that way. Our thanks to Tim Benz, and before we wrap this up, if you listen to this podcast before Friday afternoon at 3, we invite you to come out and join us for the Bengals Pep Rally Show. We'll be at Buffalo Wings and Rings in Crestview Hills, Kentucky, from 3 to 6 on Friday, and Tyler Eifert will join us for the final hour of that show. We'll have some giveaways, too, but you have to be there in order to win. That's going to do it for this episode of the podcast. If you haven't done so already, don't forget to subscribe. And if you have a minute, please give it a rating or share a comment. Five-star ratings help more Bengals fans find this podcast. I'm Dan Horde, and thank you for listening to the Bengals Booth Podcast.